I said it before and I'll say it again. That scene, that last scene. What does it mean? I'm the dude, you know? Get the fuck out of here. No, I cannot. That final scene starts now. Hi, everyone. We're back with the That Final Scene podcast. My name is Sophie, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so. And I'm glad to confirm we have the full crew back, Ben and Simon. Hello. Hello, hello. Simon, you're going to tell us all about your Glastonbury adventures. But uh, first, I want to introduce our very special guest that we're honored to have with us today in person. Actor, director, producer, and founder of the South London Film Festival, Kyriakos Georgiou. I'm going to say that in Greek, but please introduce yourself properly. So yeah, Kyriakos Georgiou for the Greek <laughs> listeners, but Kiri for short for those who get mixed up with the letters. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to have you, dude. Thank you so much for having me. Amazing. Uh, we're excited to dive into all things film festivals and indie filmmaking with you today. Um, on this episode, we're going to talk about The Long Goodbye, Riza Ahmed's short film that won the Oscar last year, and more specifically, break down its final scene. This is a short that premiered to your festival last year, so really keen to get your insights on that. But first of all, let's start with what we usually do on this episode, which is what have you guys been watching these past few days. Simon, I feel like you have been watching a bunch of drunk Brits throwing up in muddy tents over the past few weeks. But That's true. I'm conscious <laughs> that I don't want to be like a Glastonbury wanker. And <laughs> Please go on. Wank on about it. <laughs> but it was good. Saw lots of good bands, lots of campfire action. Uh, what does that mean? Campfires. <laughs> You know, okay. when you sit around a fire. All right, okay. You just have a nice chat. No, just knowing you, I thought it could be something different. <laughs> <laughs> For Sophie, I tried to enjoy Kendrick Lamar, but I just couldn't get connected to the music. Like, I just, it didn't do anything for me. To be fair, I was, I mean, I saw him live six years ago at training. Yeah. Like, tw- 2015, I can't count. Seven so, years seven ago. years ago. And I thought he was really good back then. I don't know what has happened to him since. I thought well, he was good. I thought of the headliners, I thought he was cool. the best one. I, I watched them on the Beeb over the weekend, and I thought, he was of the of the three. He was probably the one I was most impressed by, just because once you've seen McCartney live, you've seen that set like a million times. He doesn't change it. He mm. does the same thing every same time. Same with Billie Eilish. As yeah, well. and Billie Eilish is one I was a little bit like talking to somebody about it today, and actually I kind of agree with what they were saying. That it kind of feels like she's a little bit burnt out. Like she's been touring, she's been like releasing albums and touring nonstop for like the last six or seven years, and she's only what like I don't know she's like 12. nineteen or yeah something <laughs> like that. So yeah, I was a little bit like underwhelmed, and she didn't do the Bond theme, which really pissed me off <laughs> I was literally waiting for the whole thing I was like we're gonna get to the end and then she'll she'll end, she'll bring out Hans Zimmer she'll bring out Johnny Marr it'll be amazing and then she didn't do it and I was like oh thank god well fuck off how dare you that Bond thing was fantastic I was actually working in a bar so it was an extra hardcore Glastonbury because we had to work in the bar oh you did the volunteering thing yeah, yeah oh nice so you had to do an 8 hour shift and then you could go out raving afterwards wow so shout out to all the Park Bar C rotation crew <laughs> <laughs> I've actually watched some films. I watched Rocky Horror Show. Love it. Um, Love it. And I watched Broken Flowers, Jim Jarmusch. I don't think I mentioned that last time, did I? Bill Murray. Yeah, Bill Murray. Yeah. Ben? So uh, we can't talk about every episode about watching the boys, but obviously we watched Hero Orgasm and it was really good. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it was fantastic. I went and bought The Batman and No Time to Die on DVD, so I watched both of those. One of those made me cry. Which one? I'm not going to tell you. And <laughs> you have to. You know that. 
of course it was no time to die. I cried okay. like a baby when I saw it in the cinema. <laughs> I cried again. I read a really interesting article on the South London Film Festival website about films to see before you watch it. Completely agreed with every single one. I thought it was perfect. Die Another Day was on the list. I'll, I'll tell Joe about that. <laughs> yeah, Please tell Joe. Joe he was right. Nothing touches License to Kill. License to Kill, I think, was on the list as well. So That's like worry. the mega drug lord 80s one. Yeah, with, with Timothy uh, Dalton. Yeah, with Timothy Dalton. Yeah, yeah fantastic. Um, and then I've watched some Riz Ahmed stuff. So I watched, mm-hmm. I didn't watch all of Four Lines. I watched a bit of it. The long goodbye was a bit long. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, of so long course, 10 minutes. watch Rogue One. You know, I had to watch his big Star Wars debut. I feel like it's the best Star Wars film from the new ones. Yeah, oh, definitely. It's the one that you could just watch it on its own. You don't need to have seen yes. any of the rest can of I Star Wars. Yeah, you could watch it and you might, you'd probably mm-hmm. enjoy, you might enjoy it. <laughs> just because you don't like all that fantastical stuff. But yeah. So yeah, watch quite a lot in this last week. And trying to find Dogma on DVD, which I will find eventually. Is that, that the later. film with Alanis Morissette in? Yes, Alanis yeah, Morissette's yeah. in it as God. Kiri? So yeah, I've been watching a lot of stuff, actually. We've been preparing for a special event for the festival. So we've been looking at lots of stuff to do with LGBT. So lots of different types of films. But in my own time, it's funny you mentioned uh, with Rogue One, because I'm a huge fan of that. I do think I grew up with a generation of the prequels. Thank so you. When I, but what was <laughs> interesting God about that, when I, when I saw Darth Vader when I was younger... I wasn't that afraid of him, you know, because it just looked very, you know, wasn't ready to get my back in his head. Um, but I understand when I first, when I saw Rogue One and I saw Darth Vader for like how he was, I was scared, you know. I thought, wow, this is how they must have felt, you know, back then when. And this is showing my age. I'm not as old as I look. Um, but yeah, I was, he doesn't look old. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, like you know, I realized how terrifying he can be. Right. The scene at the end of Rogue One Brilliant. in the hallway, which I feel like is like a Star Wars trope now of like yeah. the hallway scene is brilliant. It's the, yeah. And I, I agree. It's the first time watching it kind of, you go like, oh shit, I can understand why people were terrified of this because my uncle is of the originals generation. Yeah. I remember him talking about seeing a man dressed as Darth Vader in a supermarket as a child and being terrified. <laughs> when I was growing up, I used to be into like wrestling and all that stuff. Oh and my God. There was you this, and I have so much in so common. It's it was ridiculous. Like, I grew up being terrified. I don't know if you know The Undertaker. Like I was this, this yeah. guy in like a black, you know, and a black outfit and, you know, dark hair. He's, he's meant to, what was he? He's like a guy from the dead or... I don't know. Oh, there's a lot Some of scary... background. Yeah, he was yeah. A, he was a he was a biker, and then he was dead, and then he was brought back from the dead, and yeah, it's all very. I was weird. terrified of this guy growing up. Yeah, and then when I become a teenager, I remember there was this girl I was talking to, and I said to her, "Don't you think he's scary?" Just no. <laughs> and I mean, that's why I realized, okay, you know, it's because you're involved in it. You know, when you're involved in something, you you realize, yeah, maybe if you step away. But in regards to stuff I've been watching, I mean, shout out to Paramount Plus. I've been watching the new South Park features. I don't know if you've seen them. Brilliant. Like, it's a no, nice, nice way to do it. Yeah. There was the ones features about COVID. And it's a boys, but they're older. So they're grown men. Wow. And it's it's set in the future. And they make sure you know it's set in the future. I do yeah. want to check out Paramount Plus because they've got the Halo series yeah. on there. I really want to watch that one. Cool. Uh, well, very quickly, I just want to call out a couple of things. So the Umbrella Academy... Have you guys heard of it? Uh, yeah, I yeah. haven't watched the latest season yet, though. I've heard it's good. Have you seen the first yeah, two? Yeah, i watched the first two. Right. Yeah. So The Umbrella Academy is like a Netflix. It's my kind of like dopamine show. You know, you know, it's not perfect, but you just go back to it because it makes you feel all fuzzy. It revolves around a dysfunctional family of adopted siblings that have superpowers and they reunite to solve their father's death, like the mystery that's around that. So since season one, things have changed, but... I don't know, I just love every single character in that show. And, Simon, season three, out of nowhere... Mrs. Doubtfire. 
No. Oh. Crystallized. No, runs on the run, Simon. Oh, okay. No, no, no. Crystallized by the XX. Oh, Just nice. out of nowhere. I'm like, oh, I'm going to lose my shit. Like, it, it, was such a good, like, so, it was so well done. So, And then very quickly, I, I know we talked about this before starting recording, but I watched Elvis last week. Thumbs up. Did for his me. hips make I, you go crazy as all the adverts seem to make out? Because it's all just focused on his hips. What I'm going to say is that I'm officially jumping on the Austin Butler Oscar bus train. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. Well, I'm not a massive Buzz Lurman fan like Roman Juliet, Moulin Rouge, like The Great Gatsby. There are things that I like about these films, but also he's a very particular kind of filmmaker. And mm-hmm. I know we're going to talk about filmmaking in a bit, but... The film has received very mixed reviews because it has such a distinct identity. It has like crazy cuts and like insane transitions. Like you need to be in that kind of mindset because otherwise it's it can be perceived as very fast paced and you, you're like, oh shit, I need to cut my breath for a second. So it's very like you have to be tuned in. But there is something to be appreciated when it comes to like original filmmaking. You know, when you see something authentic and you're like, I'm seeing there's a vision here. I think so I can either like choose to begrudge my way through the film or sit back, relax, enjoy it for what it is, even though it's not my traditional cup of tea. The one thing you can say about Lerman, I think, is that no matter what the film is, if you didn't know anything about the film and you put someone in it, you know it's him. I heard that it was a 20-minute standing ovation. Was I hearing yeah, it? In can, yeah, yeah. It, doesn't, it has one of the longest like standing ovations I think can. How can you Mental, clap for like, 20 minutes? You can't clap for 20 minutes. I feel like that's fake news, but it's true. Yeah. It's also true. But it's like It just you, takes 20 minutes for everybody to walk out as they're standing to try and get right. out. So that's yeah, the yeah. But yeah. I mean, your palms go numb. I mean, I feel like, I feel like you, you can't. You, you're right. Like I, you, so you have the last word on the applause. I then. would, I would do like a 20 minute standing ovation for Austin Butler's performance, which, as I said to you guys earlier, I feel like it's the best male performance that I've seen in the leading role this year so far. He doesn't just embody Elvis; like he is Elvis. Like in every single scene, it's like. It's so hard to show like groundness and like humanity and emotion behind that kind of like crazy costume and makeup, but he somehow pulls that off like so beautifully. I was very moved even towards the end. He just, Seth's kiss. <laughs> On the other hand, Tom Hanks, his worst performance today. But it's interesting because the Austin Butler's one, like when with any kind of biopic, it's it's a really hard line between impersonating the person and kind of inhabiting the person. And I haven't seen the film yet, but what I've heard about it is it says that Austin Butler inhabits Elvis and Tom Hanks is very much a kind of a weird kind of impersonation of Colonel Tom Parker. It's a and you kind of see the two differences yes. there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's almost like Butler can step into Elvis's shoes and you can kind of tell the authenticity in there. And then Tom Hanks, like an imitation, which is what acting is all about. You have imitation and then you have like, Literally embodiment, method. right? <laughs> uh, did he go for it's maybe a controversial Austin. thing, that, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe yeah. he went for method. Some people don't even like calling it method. Yeah, method. yeah, yeah. yeah Why? Uh, what's wrong with method? I think people don't like to refer to it as method because the term method has gotten negative connotations in recent mm-hmm. years from like the Jared Leto sending rats to his co-stars as the Joker kind of thing. Whereas other actors, people like Christian Bale, they don't really call it method because it's not. It is just like it's performance. And this mm-hmm. idea of method is something that's gotten a bit of a bad rap recently. I don't know. Yeah, there are a lot of polarizing opinions on that because you're right, like Jared, Christian Bale, like 
Daniel Day-Lewis, they've taken method acting way too literally. The and guy from Succession has been the really big example because obviously there was the, is it the New York Times article about him last year in which they kind of painted him as like an obsessive when actually then everybody else has come out and said, no, he's not an obsessive. He's just really, he's really committed to it. He doesn't treat people like crap. He doesn't treat people like Kendall treats people, but he just inhabits that. You know, he wears the clothes and he kind of has that attitude. It doesn't mean he's a dick to people like... I think the thing is, is people have used method acting to excuse kind of being a dick for a while. I think there's, a, there's also this misconception with it as well, because, I mean, when I was studying acting, you know, a lot of it was was about like Stanislavski and learning about, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I think, especially with the whole Heath Ledger thing, I think audiences who may not have the experience in that field of work obsessed with this idea of Heath Ledger and what happened and it just makes a good story doesn't it you know like like right. uh, Jared Leto sending, sending rats yeah. to his coat you know but how yeah. much of it do we know is actually you know once they take their clothes off and their outfit you know are they the same or it sounds like a good story you know but you know was he the Joker at home who knows you know you're right and, and I think it's also the concept around acting is still like a profession at the end of the day, like you don't have to be a dick to people, especially in a professional like workplace in order to bring your art to the table. I'm vastly paraphrasing, but I remember this kind of quote from John Cassavetes where he said something along the lines of, yeah, you can do the whole method acting thing or you can just show up and act. <laughs> which, is, which is like, you, you, you can bring your 100% by like, you know, stepping into the character while like the camera is like rolling and then you can just be yourself or you can just do the whole like, Jarletta thing. So, yeah, I I don't know. I don't have strong opinions. Like, just don't be a dick. Like when you're working. I've got a I question that, for you. Yeah. So Elvis has you know quite a large audience, obviously. Yes. And in terms of generations, there's there's like the older generation who really were obsessed with Elvis, and you know probably I don't know if they still listen to his stuff, but we don't really hear Elvis in media these days. So the younger generations probably have no idea unless their parents or elders played it for them. You know, there's not many people that would know. What do you think that younger audiences, out of sort of the older generation and the younger audience, who do you think this film appeals more to? Yeah, the demographic is very interesting. I think there are two big players here, like Austin Butler. I don't know much about him, but I know he dated <laughs> Vanessa Hudgens for a while. So like, he's like prime MTV star. Is he not still human. dating Vanessa Hudgens? I don't think he, no, no I think they not. broke up ages ago, but like he has that kind of like Gen Z crowd from dating her and I think someone like her potentially. So I think that's how they were able to draw like a younger crowd through him in a way. Mm -hmm. And then you have Tom Hanks, which is like America's Sweetheart, which I feel like you see Tom Hanks and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to go see that film. But I don't know whether, Simon, you have a better insight in terms of like what is Elvis Presley's like legacy in that kind of younger generation, how he's perceived. The one thing that I did like, which is, again, it's a Lorman thing, is that you have a lot of modern music in, like, uh, some people are going to hate that, but I actually like that I, I don't know, there was like a Doja Cat in that. Like. <laughs> For me, it's interesting. It's like yeah. you don't expect that. And like in the world of like, I mean, we're recording this in 2022 where you have like 25 biopics coming out every single year. 90% mm. of them are going to be nominated for an Oscar. Like, if you want to do another fucking biopic, you might as well do something interesting with it. And for me, Elvis brought that kind of, like, interesting angle. But, yeah, like, from a younger generation, I feel like Hanks and Butler are going to be the main draws rather than Lorman himself. On the face of it, I just don't think it's very attractive to young people. Like, I think it would be a big draw, yeah. Yeah. I think. In terms of cinema going public, you might know this, Sophie. What's the split of age ranges that tend to go to cinema nowadays? Well, you might know this, Kiri. Is it older? And is that why they're skewing these films to older? I, I 
It's a good question. It's really hard to tell because since the pandemic, it's skewed the, the statistics. But definitely, it is younger audiences are less in favour of cinema, you know. And I mean, and it's interesting what you were saying earlier about the Marvel sort of dominating the industry. I think there's more of an interest in independent film now yeah. because they've been dominating for so many years that people are tired of it. People they've been rinsed. Yeah, you know. And, and then once you see, you know, all these huge movies, and you think. You see something like, say, you know, we'll talk about it later, long but when you see these these independent shorts or features that have their own voice, people who like maybe spark an interest in film because, you know, they've experienced Marvel, experienced these scenes, they realise, whoa, there's a bit more there. What's this? It's a movie. No. No, I liked it. No. Can I say something? No. I don't get it. What don't you get about it? Cool. So why don't we move on to our discussion with Kiri? So what's your story? So I grew up in South London. Um, it's somewhere I've been, you know, always passionate about, you know, doing something creative. My dad was really, really into film. He, he loved movies. In fact, sometimes it was a bit inappropriate because, like, <laughs> I remember when I was really young, he said to me, you need to check this film out. The Sixth Sense is fantastic. And, um, <laughs> I, I, and, I, and you know, I know your listeners, I don't want to give spoilers, but I don't care anymore. It's so old. If you haven't seen it, you know, go and... It's the final yeah, scene. This I watched yeah. it and, you know, the opening where, where you get shot, right? I mean, and he's sitting on the bench. I said, Dad, is he dead? And he said, shh. <laughs> and then, and I was like, I got it straight away. And then there was that scene with the mum in the kitchen. I wouldn't go upstairs on my own. I did someone in the bathroom with me when I go toilet. It was just, I ruined my, why did he show that to me? You know, I never understood why he did that. But there was another time where, again, living in South London, people do really naughty things. And I was with my mum one day. We were coming back from a family event. I don't know why. But someone shot, I don't know if it was a BB gun or you know, the metal bullet, I don't know what they're called, shot my back of my mum's car window. And it like, you know, glass shatters and it's all sort of stays together, but it's, it was shattered. Splinters, and yeah. she was driving very, very slowly. And I was in the back scared. And the bang, it was so loud, you know. And You were in um, it? I was in the car, oh, yeah. Right. And um, it's South London, right? And then um, I, <laughs> we got home and obviously my dad had come out and she said, George, look what's happened. You know, someone's done this, someone shot the car. Someone shot the car, I can't believe it. And he came and said, you know what? I just watched Titanic brilliant and I said like, like, you need to go watch it you need to go watch it movie it's fantastic and I was thinking like look the car you know? but you know it's my childhood growing up and I studied film I was passionate about it and then I was in I was doing my A-levels and I was about 18 years old and then my father passed away so um, at this point he was they were separated in Cyprus uh, where my family are from and I thought, what do I do? You know, where, where do, like, I was dealing with, the, you know, when the parents are not together, anyone that's lost a relative, it's hard. You know, you, mm -hmm. you've got, not only you, you're battling with your emotions, you're battling with legal processes. You know, it's all about money. It's all about funeral, this and that, and um, solicitors and stuff. And that's all I was dealing with. And I thought, what, what can I do? I got kicked out of college because I didn't finish my studies. I was falling behind on deadlines. And I thought, what, what am I going to do? You know, so I went away for a bit. And I came back a new person. I just decided I'm going to go out there and try. And I was doing anything I could to get on set, whether it was background work, extra work, running and things like that. From there, I just made contacts. I went from one thing to another, to another, to another. And then um, I decided to go back to the school that I went to as a student. They were looking for a technician. And I learned on the job. I, I met the kids. And it was really weird because the, the age bracket was quite close together between my age and then the, the students. So I was 18, you know, when my father passed away. And I think I was about just about just almost 1920 when I started there. And the, the, the kids are still 18, 19, you know, so a lot of them recognized me. And I'm in this position where how do you, you know, teach these kids these things, right? So as the years went on, I was there for about five years and the age gap went and I become more of a sir 
than, than Kiri. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, like things changed. And then I, I was made redundant from there. And I thought, okay, now's the chance. I'm going to go and be creative. And yeah, was started writing and learning how to edit, taught myself editing, all that stuff. Got another job in a school, but this time a bit of a more senior position, more directly teaching the kids about the sort of filmmaking process, editing, photography. Saved all my money that I got from my full-time job. Got myself a camera. What camera did you get? Uh, I got a Canon 5D. So at the time, that was like the big, big deal, you know, and that got a lens, which I still use today. The lens is fantastic. 70 to 200, the Canon L series of fan. <laughs> but yeah, no, go and get one. It's fantastic. But yeah, like I used that and I went out there, was, was doing events. And this is the thing that I say to a lot of people, when you see opportunities, grab them. And, you know, you've got to realise, like, I, I went to, so I went to Comic-Con. Stan Lee was there, and there was a three-hour queue to go and get into this event. I had no tickets, and yet you have to pay as well to go and see him talk. And I thought, I want to be in there. You know, I want to, mm-hmm. and I was, I was with my partner, she was with me as well. And I said, hold on a minute. And there was this big security guard checking people's tickets. The queue went all around the back, and I just went to the front. I said, excuse me. And I had to put my camera on my shoulders, like, excuse me. And he just said, yeah, mind out the way, and he let me in. And he said, press over there. So I went over right. and I see this big section where they have like the BBC and all these like big companies. Wow. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going over there. I'm going to the stage. So I went right over to where the stage was. And then they, then they, they said, right, they're closing doors. They're going to start the first talk. And I was like, Oh my God. And it was already starting and Stanley had come on the stage and no one was going to come and grab me. So I just sat down on the floor right in front of the stage with my big camera. And I got some of the most amazing pictures of Stanley, got to meet him, talk to him. And these were some of the last ever pictures of him, you know, when he came to England or Europe. And uh, yeah, I was really Wait, proud. Wait, what about your partner? Was she just like shoved outside? She was waiting outside. Yeah. Uh, and I come back and say, oh my God, I met Stanley. So that's nice. Um, <laughs> I've watched Titanic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, it was great. I, and you know, from there I used those pictures. I, I was like, right, you know, guys, look what I've taken. They put them on their website, you know, and whatever I could do. And then I got hired to go and do them. And I started getting more gigs and getting more photography work. Then it was like, oh, can you do a music video? Can you do this? Can you do weddings? Yes. Do you want to continue doing weddings? No, I hate them. Um, they're horrible. Yeah, from there, I, I was working in another school. And at that point I decided I've had enough here. I'm going to get all my kit. I'm going to, you know, go and start making stuff. My friend who's a filmmaker and producer, he said to me, just do it, you know, just go. So I went, started lining up clients and boom, one thing after the other and made a short film in lockdown and made a festival. I have so many questions about that. Okay, so first of all, from what I've read about you, it feels to me like this period was a massive, like, period of reflection for you because one, you release your short film, when life gives you lemons, take them because there are none left in Tesco, right? So brilliant for, title. Yeah. Brilliant <laughs> title. For our non-British listeners, Tesco is a massive supermarket chain here. So FYI. How did you find the motivation to shoot it, produce it, put it out? And secondly, which kind of related to the first question is like, I'm sure you were in touch with a, with a lot of new and established filmmakers at the time. So I would love for you to give us a bit of a breakdown, like an idea of the atmosphere at the time in terms of like how mm-hmm. were filmmakers approaching like creativity. There was no new stimulations. There were no like new experiences, not like no social interactions. Can you walk us through that? I was one of those people that, I don't know if you guys go through this, but um, do full-time stuff. So, you know, when you're in that position and like I was in my previous job, you just want bloody time. You just want time, you know? <laughs> we, we always drive, we spend our whole lives wanting time and then we die because, you know, we die. Yes. And then it's like, where was the time? You know, where did the time go? And when lockdown happened, we had time. 
And I used to beat myself up. Like I used to think if I'm sitting there watching a film, I'm wasting time. I need to go and be creative. I need to make stuff. I need to do stuff. And that's what I was doing. All my partner was at work, family out doing stuff. Like everyone I knew was busy. My friends are out. I can't meet up with them. And I thought, what am I supposed to do with this time? You know, I need to be creative. It got to a stage where lockdown happened and I can't be creative because like, I mean, I can't make money. I can't do much because everything's shut. I thought, wow, I have time. Life has paused. (laughs) The world has stopped. And for the first few weeks, I was a bit, mm, you know, what am I doing with this? And sitting in the sun, we did a few barbecues, just chilled out and, you know, did the typical Greek thing. You know, so, um, lots of Greek music. And um, playing and plates, magic. I actually found out my neighbour was Greek. This is how bad. I mean, I don't know, British people, we're, we're just like, we're not in tune with our neighbours. But it was actually funny. I was shooting my short. And uh, for those who haven't seen it, like I'm playing this guy who's on his way to work, but he's dressed in his work outfit and... I was having a barbecue in the garden. We were playing Greek music. Next thing you know, the neighbour knocked on the door and I opened the door in this like suit and it just, because we were filming the upper half, I was in suit and shorts. It was really <laughs> hot as well. So I opened the door and she must have been thinking, what is he doing? But at least I was all these tripods and light stands and everything. And she was probably She was thinking, just like, only fans for Yeah, sure. she must have thought, what the hell is going on? And, she, and I was thinking, who are you as well? Like, this. And she was talking to me in Greek and I was just so confused. And there's that bit of language barrier when someone's from Greece and you're from Cyprus and and I was like, oh, you're Greek. And she was telling me that she's Greek and she heard the music and she wanted to come and say hello. And I was like, oh, wow. We should have been socially distancing, but we didn't. It was yeah. a work event. It was a work <laughs> Yeah, it was. She was part of the crew. Yeah, yeah she was yeah. the sound yeah. operator yeah. on the boom. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like the film really, and I just thought to myself, what are people doing in this time? Like we're here, what, what is everyone doing? And I thought about those guys who go on the train every day, they commute to work every day. And you know, how are they coping in this time? And it was, it's one of those things where I imagined that they must be finding it hard to adapt. And then I thought, how many people are struggling during this time? And I thought, I need to do something creative. And I wrote this script and then I really liked the script and I was laughing my head off when I wrote it. And then I thought, I wonder if anyone else thinks it's funny. So I sent it to one friend, loved it. Another friend loved it. And everyone was saying, gosh, you need to make this film. So I did. And yeah, it was doing really well at festivals. And I realised that when my film was being successful, it was getting selected this country, there, that country, there, and it was getting awards and things like that. And I thought, I need to like now give a voice to others because there's all these, there were some festivals, I'm not going to name them, but this is my experience as a, as a filmmaker. There's millions of festivals out there. And I thought, what do I do? How do you, what do you submit to? How do you know what's legit? And then, you know, some of them like, you know, you submit to them. There are many scams out there. Yes. Yeah. I, again, I can't say yeah, who. Please don't but, even, yeah, please don't know. Yeah. There are a lot of scams. People have to be very careful. Yeah, yeah. You have to be really careful. And I realised that, you, no one knows, you know, and there's lots of like, you know, particular ones where you submit and then you've got to get your friends to vote. And and I realised I want to, I want to have my own say, you know, I want to say what I think is good out there. Yeah, like I, I just set it up and people were just following it and all of a sudden it was just blowing up and people were like, you know, really proud to have something from South London. And I thought, wow, you know, this is this is amazing. And Rain Dance, uh, within three months, when I started it, I said, one day we'll be like them. Within three months, we partnered with them. Wow. That's a big thanks to uh, David Martinez, who's the producer, and Elliot Grove, founder of Rain Dance. They really looked after me, uh, gave me some advice. I had a session with Elliot who gave me really good tips and advice. And I just saw, yeah. Shout out. Shout out. Yeah, amazing. Starting a film festival must be difficult enough as it is. What was it like trying to start a film festival in the <laughs> middle of the whole world just kind of going to shit for about two it was, years. It was probably the best time to do it. Okay. And, and, I, and the reason for that is because it sounds cool because I was on the phone to Arnold Schwarzenegger's agent because I thought, 
I just thought big. Everyone is off. Everyone's yeah. doing nothing. And Arnold Schwarzenegger is doing nothing right now. So let me try and see if I can. He was my hero growing up. I watched, you know, all these films and I thought, I don't to get my heroes, right? And we managed to get an interview with Mo Gilligan, who's a comedian from South mm-hmm. London. Arnold Schwarzenegger in particular was one that I really, really wanted to get. And we got really, really close. And then he had a problem with his heart and was off and we even like tried to reach out to he'll Robert be back. Zemeckis. And, <laughs> yeah, he'll, he'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> um, How long were you waiting yeah. to say that? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, should I? And then, yeah, and I thought, and that was this big debate do I put my face on it because I'm a filmmaker I wanted to sort of do my own thing and get seen and I thought if I'm involved with the festival it might push me away from what I want to do you know and if I ever had my film I you know what's going to happen so I made a rule I said I'm never ever going to have any films that I've worked on or, or been in part of the festival uh, so it's fair you know we've got independent judges how many people are on the festival team there with you I can't, I can't think numbers, but it's a big team. You know, we're growing. And yeah, like we, we've got a nice diverse team as well. And that's that's important as well, because I think that the one thing that's interesting about art and film and anything is that it's a voice, right? You paint a picture, that's your, that's your voice, that's your art. And film is the same thing. People write about what they know. And when things happened, it was the Black Lives Matter movement. Films come in about that. It was pandemic. There was a, loads of movies about the pandemic. In fact, there was this thing that kept coming up. We had about five of them. And there was three that were literally exactly the same. And it was about this, you know, those hotlines where you call like dating or the video, like the, where they do something sexy for you on the, in the video <laughs> thing. Heavy breathing. Yeah, like, I don't know. It was the, I forgot they're called those Live type of sex lines. Yeah, sex line. Yeah, like yeah. one of those things. And it was basically the guy would be calling one of those sex lines and the woman's on there going, hey, baby, doing all this stuff. And really, he just wanted to chat because he was lonely. And it was a really nice idea. But then lots of people but had to say. You same, also have her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then she and then she Maybe was she's lonely. Coining it in. But, but yeah, and that's the thing. Like she was lonely too, and he was lonely. And then they, what? In the end, they had a lovely conversation, and it was not about sex and stuff. And you know, and oh, there's no charge. Oh, what a lovely ending! Yeah. So it's and a different. If it's a, it's a different ending, if she's like, and that'll be uh, 150 pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you know anything about these sex lines, you just get charged the minute you call. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's no. She doesn't send an invoice at the end. <laughs> Who's going to pay that? <laughs> These guys that ring in, they're so honest with their invoice paying. They, they always pay within a week. <laughs> so if someone wants to get your attention and they're a filmmaker, what's the best way to frame it and get you to pay attention to it? That's a good question. There's never a right or wrong length of a film to make. But sometimes some messages don't need to be 20 minutes long. You know, sometimes you can make a point in in five minutes, ten minutes, even two to three minutes. We have a film that we're going to be screening soon, and I cannot say the name of it, but it is incredible and it is so powerful, and it's only three minutes, less than three minutes even. Mm. We have to decide. You know, when we're putting on our our program, when we have a, a list of films, if every film was twenty minutes, so say you made a twenty minute film, you made a twenty minute film, that's forty minutes of an audience's time. I always think the masters of, of short emotional films are Pixar because yeah. they can literally have you in tears in like 35 seconds and tell you a whole story within three minutes. Well, um, uh, we're obviously we're going to talk about the long goodbye in, it, in a few minutes, but that is a, it's 12 minutes long and does a lot more emotionally and politically than films that are like two hours long yeah. could even possibly do. And it's, mm. it's a perfect testament to this. I won't talk about it too much, but it's a perfect testament to the right pacing and the right time. Yeah. It's a whirlwind 12 minutes that says it's, so much more than, as I say, like, you know, you could have a, a three hour biopic of something that it makes a much clearer and a much more important statement than something like that could. Okay. A couple of last quick questions. So the first one, I mean, from everything you've been saying, like you sound like someone who's 
incredibly passionate about what they do. And from my understanding, you want to bring all kinds of stories like to the forefront, but from a South London lens. So I would love to hear from you, like, what are your plans this year in terms of making that happen? Like, what do you have going on? So, yeah, we are called the South London Film Festival, Mm -hmm. but we're international. So we have films from all over the country, all over the world, you know, and we have films from countries uh, that I probably wouldn't even know how to pronounce. France. We had, (laughs) yeah, France. (laughs) 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 Voices from different parts of the world are so important. And my plan is I want to encourage South Londoners. I want to encourage more people to go out, do creative things, be inspired and expose them to more international voice. And equally, get South London on the map, you know, like get, get our people out there. And, you know, it's just a matter of, giving that voice. In regards to what's happening, uh, we have some really exciting stuff happening this year. So we're part of London Borough of Culture, which is uh, Lewisham. So they've won, won their the London... I mean, I'm from Lewisham, so I'm really proud of that as well. So it's great. Um, but yeah, we're involved in that and we've got some cool things. We're going to have networking events. We're coming up to do a Pride event, which is happening uh, in uh, mid-July. So yeah, it's going to be really cool. We've got amazing films. And what like you say, passion, you know, I am passionate about doing this. So sometimes we have films that come in that maybe don't reach the sort of annual festival that we can show, but we still want to show some, you know, so this is the opportunity to show some of the films, some of them that did win and some of them that haven't been seen before. Really amazing music video that come in, uh, which we cannot wait to show everyone about toxic masculinity. So it's really, really nice. We are in talks about a particular thing we might be doing for Black History Month. So some special films about black filmmakers, told by black filmmakers. We're working with universities and colleges. We're going in, doing talks, things like that, uh, workshops. Uh, This amazing filmmaker that got in touch, Liam Rogers, he made this short film called London's Forgotten. And it's like a poetic short about knife crime. This is more about the victims and about the path they take. And it's a very poetic style short. So in a way, sort of experimental, but not. So yeah, we're going to be screening his film in... October, I believe. Then we're going to be touring schools and hopefully, you know, talking about this, working with organisations to to sort of raise awareness, bring works and hopefully get this stuff in curriculums because why not? Let's, Let's push for that, right? Amazing. And we're going to have all of this info in our show notes as well. So you better send me all this stuff. We do have a lot of filmmakers from London listening, but we also have a lot of filmmakers outside of London who are. So in terms of how they can get involved with the festival, because I believe submissions are open, correct? Yeah, submissions right. are open pretty much all year round. So when they end, we just open them again. Just check our social media. We'll say if they're closed or the website, we'll, we'll put it up, say it's closed or open. But back to Liam and his, his short film about knife crime. He reached out to us. He reached out to the festival and said, hey, I've got this idea about, I want to I do this film. I've written it, direct what team. We need money. We need to make this happen. Obviously, I, I wish I had the money to give to people, mm. but we don't. Um, it would be a non-profit. But what we can do, we have an audience. So we, we did a crowdfunding Q&A. We talked about his film, what, what his plans are. We're also friends with Greenlit. They're amazing for doing crowdfunding. They, they focus on film. So we got him in touch with them and set them up. Mm-hmm. But there was a particular person uh, called Marie who was in there. She was just writing notes throughout the thing. And I was looking and I thought, it's really interesting, you know, it's really passionate. And at the end, she had like, I think it was two pages of notes of what I was saying. And I thought, that's that's really good, you know, it's really amazing. And at the end, I said to I said to Liam, you need to keep people like that, people who are passionate, that, that are hungry, that, that really, really want to help. And that's the people that will go far in this world, in this industry. Let's wrap this up with your personal, like, project, because you teased it quite nicely. What is it all about? So I am planning to make a TV series. Oh. Um, just to give an idea, 
as part of research, one of the things we're doing, we're watching lots of comedies. Peep Show, In Between Us, <laughs> Simon. Uh, Fresh Meat, Only Fools and Horses. These are some of our inspirations. This is the route we're going down. Oh, that's so exciting. It's cool. Yeah. Mm. I'm so looking forward to the festival and all of the events that, you know, you have coming up. Please invite us to every single one of them. Yeah. Thank you. Um, cool. Let's take a quick break and then we're going to come Pee back break. for our final scene. Oh, look, a message from our sponsor. G.I. Jane 2. Can't wait to see it. Nah, yo, hold my poodle. Hey, yo, what's up? Y'all got a problem? Y'all want some of this? Without much further ado. Here we go again. So, as mentioned earlier, The Long Goodbye is a short film that was produced and co-written by Riz Ahmed that won the Best Live Action Short Film Oscar last year. Behind Ahmed on stage was co-writer and director Anil Karia, best known for directing Surge. If you feel like having an anxiety attack for an hour and a half, please watch this film. It's really good. <laughs> it's really good. It's very well. Sold it so well. It's very well directed. Did you say an anxiety attack? Anxiety, yeah, it's yeah. like uncut gems. <laughs> As in like, it's good, but like it will, you need to be in that kind of mindset to enjoy I it. I loved uncut gems. Yeah, I feel like Serge has that kind of like tone, but it's very nihilistic in the same, I don't know. Um, anyway, 12 minutes long, The Long Goodbye is divided into three acts. Every single one of them is entirely different tonally, which I feel like it's one of my favorite things about the film actually. So the first part sees a British South Asian family at home. Ahmed's character is at the heart of a busy household. We meet him having a dance with his younger brother, criticizing another sibling for not doing the washing up and arguing with his dad over whether it's worth watching the news. Upstairs, we see a group of girls preparing for a wedding and, you know, with a bride admitting that Tiffman is a workaholic. Again, like everyday, mundane, boring life stuff. Now, while all of this is happening, suddenly we see a group of white nationalists, it's not just the police, right? Barging into their home, this is the middle section, terrorizing the family before dragging them onto the streets and attacking them. And finally, the very last section, which is what I would call the final scene, shifts tone dramatically again, turning into some kind of surreal musical horror in a way, where Reese's character performs the spoken words, last poetry, last rap song, Where You're From, from his 2020 concept album, The Long Goodbye to end the film in a gut-wrenching punch. So now before talking about the final scene, I feel like we need to address the urgency of that film. So Simon, I know like you texted us the other day um, when you watched the film and you were like, this film is more relevant than ever. Why did you say that? I was just, I was after something a bit gentle to watch. So I thought, <laughs> I'll put Sophie's short film on. <laughs> and I was literally film. having like heart palpitations for an hour. But I just thought in the context of the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the way populism is riding so high at the moment, just feels like this film is very of the moment. And it felt quite potentially real. It didn't feel, that film doesn't feel that far off in terms of some of the stuff that's been happening. So that's why I found it so terrifying. You might have more context behind this, Kiri, but um, so they shot that film in 2020, correct? I read a bunch of their interviews and from my understanding is that Anil and Reese didn't actually know each other. So they kind of like got together in order to get not that film made per se, but they wanted to get something out there. And like when they got together, they realized they had so much in common in terms of like what they felt at the time. And you, we, we live in a post-Brexit England, right? Where you have like rising intolerance and like, you know, you have dehumanization of like refugees in the Ukraine right now. So like there's a lot of turmoil and I felt like from their interviews they kind of got together and they realized that was the therapy that was the way of like looking inwards and bringing their perspective and like frustrations out from that film so 
we can jump straight to the final scene, which I feel like the reason it works is because the first half of the film has that kind of incredible naturalistic feel to it. It almost feels like you're watching a documentary, like you're just watching people just being people. Like- well, it lures you into a false sense of security because obviously the setting is in a South Asian family, but it's something that everyone would recognize. And it lures you into that while you have these kind of undertones of what's going on. You see the stuff like, you know, when I watched it the second time, you see on the screen, the right. kids watching the news about the riots in the background, you see that. That bit of comedy because you're not transparent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so I think that's why, because it lures you into the false sense of security of comfort of chaotic nature of family ga- gatherings to then something that, as Simon said, is the most kind of upsetting thing about it is that it doesn't feel far off you know, in the Britain we live in today. And it's something that I I went and listened to the album as well. The album is unflinchingly honest and aggressive about what that feeling is like. And as, as someone who doesn't know that feeling, it's really difficult to make someone feel how you feel when you're from a completely different yeah. background and to kind of immerse you in, in that. And The Long Goodbye does a great job as a Neil Korea, but then just this music in general, like the opening track of The Long Goodbye is called The Breakup. And it's the pretense of a breakup with a girl called Brittany. And it develops into, it's a breakup between his culture and Britain. And it's like, not to get like all sweary, but it's fucking incredible. Like it's fucking brilliant. And the film does that. His monologue at the end, what, what do you, I don't really know what to call it. Like a monologue or kind of his rap or like, it, like it's poetry. It's unflinchingly honest about the fact that what happens in the film is something that unfortunately it feels like we're not that far off. Like we have, you have films in the past, like V for Vendetta in 1984, where you talk about, talk about people being dragged away in the night. Well, unfortunately stuff like Brexit has meant that there is an atmosphere around the country of, if things got a little bit more extreme, something like that could happen. I saw this film very, very early before, you know, this had come to Oscars and everything is done, amazing stuff. I saw this film as a credit to Anil. Anil actually had two winning films in our festival that year. Oh, wow. He had Teardrops, which was the Kano, oh, Kano. music. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. Such a good film. Yeah. yeah. He's an incredible director. Like Anil is someone I'd love to work with one day. He's a really, really, really talented person. I, I want to say this, you know, and I think it's really, really important that when I saw that film, I instantly broke down because I thought, whoa. I don't feel safe. When Brexit happened, I was scared. I honestly was scared to play my Greek music going up because I thought, especially when it was the heat of, you know, get it done, you know, and I thought if I'm now going around playing my my music, they're going to think, get out of this country, don't play this. in. in and, and for the first time in my life, I felt I don't have a place. And I get it. I get how Riz is feeling. I get how loads of people are feeling. And this is in one of the most diverse places in the country. We're in South London. And, you know, I mean, obviously, I don't know where Riz, Riz, Riz is, but, He's you know, Wembley. Pakistan, Wembley. Wembley. Yeah, no, I mean, like in London, yeah. But when I grew up and I looked at people like Riz, and this is why, again, like I said before, why we have a South London Film Festival, I grew up and I see people like Riz. And when I saw that film for the first time, because I, I then went through this identity thing where I was ashamed of being British. I was ashamed of seeing that that flag. You know, every time I saw it, I used to think that associates with right wing, you know, that's not who I am. I don't want to be part of that. I don't agree with, with making people feel little. But then Riz Ahmed, and when I saw this film, and, I, and I'm not just exaggerating, I'm really, when I saw it for the first time, I felt proud of being British. As a film in general, like there's very few films that I would class as something that's important and that a lot of people should see. And I watched that and the, one of the, my thoughts on it was, is 
it needs to be showing schools in this country and around the world because it's a really important film to show that this is a reality and that or it could be a reality and but you know it's a reality for people like Riz and families like that how they feel and that fear is a real thing I felt the same way after I watched Book of Mormon actually (laughs) and and in a similar way it gave me faith in humanity again that material like that can be made and published Mm -hmm. and get popular for me this is why the ending works because the first half is the kind of representation we are lacking right now. Um, whether you have a big or you have like you're a lone child, like regardless of your background, like the fact that you're seeing just like a British South Asian family just doing fuck all. Honestly, that's what they're doing for the Arguing. first time. Yeah, that, that's it. Like this isn't like on BBC right now. This isn't like they're, they're using like characters from this community to just tell very specific stories. And like for me, the ending wouldn't be so uh, impactful if it weren't for the first half. So, mm. like, the ending where we have, we change tone, and you have, like, Riz's character is getting shot. He starts rapping from the ground, and you instantly move to, like, this heightened, fictional, almost dystopian place where it's like, what? Like, what is, ha-? like, you're just having an oh moment, like, moment realization, and... I think from a storytelling point of view, like from a filmmaking point of view, like this is surreal. Like obviously he's dead. We just enter like different level of filmmaking right now. But to go back to your point, Kiwi, like even for me, like even though for many people that seems dystopian, that seems unrealistic for immigrants, for refugees, this isn't mm. a dystopian scenario. Like this isn't a very real, like nightmare scenario. Like I know, like to kind of relate on the Brexit stuff, like I moved to London two weeks before Brexit happened. And when I learned the news, I was like, <laughs> interesting. So how does this change my worldview? And I remember, obviously, like, Simon, like, you were one of the first people that I got to meet, like, when I moved here. And I just remember, because I knew, like, Brexit was this kind of, like, imminent cloud on top of me. I was, I remember feeling very wary about getting comfortable, making friends, settling mm-hmm. down, buying my own place. Like, it took me, like, a decent amount of years to create that sense of security around to be like, okay, this may just be it. But like, I remember having nightmares of like getting booted off my flat. Mm-hmm. Like one day you're in, one day you're out because mm-hmm. laws, like, let's see what happened with the abortion. Like, you know, like one day you're allowed to do something and the next day you're not. So like, we're taking all of these things for granted. And like, I feel like this is the kind of message that the, the rap slash poetry ultimately does to you from, again, from a filmmaking perspective. Even when you were describing it, I started feeling really upset thinking about it. Because I I remember, it's the the horror. Mm. That is horror. You feel every word. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about you guys, but the bit that really got me was when the policeman gave him the thumbs up. Yeah. I found that. And and then the second bit was when he was shouting help to the people in the window in the next house Mm. along. And they just were looking. And it really reminded me of the, This Is England. Have you seen that? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, and the scene where the boy gets beaten up. No one's allowed to do anything about it. And they let this yeah. kid get terribly, yeah. probably beaten to death. I can't remember. Yeah. It was it's a similar feeling like I got from that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of the interviews that I saw from Reese on the film, because you mentioned This Is England, he said, This Is England too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's the meaning behind the long goodbye. Like, This yeah. Is England too. What made that film so strong and why we care so much about it is because those characters were real. 
They were real people. It's funny because I I was terrified in Terminator growing up because <laughs> the second one in particular, you can't kill it. You know, this thing is like, whatever you do, it's just like there. You think when something you cannot fix, something you cannot stop, sure. it's un, mm. un, this terror. That and that just, extends to viewpoints. When, yeah. when somebody can't be reasoned with, that's my yeah. worst nightmare. When you can't even have a discussion about yeah. something, yeah, that's yeah. the worst. Yeah, and, and this is the thing. Like, And again, and I mean, look, I've said my views on Brexit, how I feel about it, is a very controversial thing. There are some people, and I, and I even know, and my friend said to me, I was very vocal during this whole thing and my friend said to me stop preaching to the people that you already know on the night of brexit i went to get a curry from local curry place in turnpike lane and it's owned by like an old indian couple and, uh, and i was like oh, have you guys voted in the referendum and they were like yeah out mm. and i was like why and they were like well there's too many too many of us now it's overrun and i was like so so this so this Brexit question, it's just never ending. Everyone's got a different yeah, angle and on this it. Is, and, and that doesn't necessarily lead to racism and ultra yeah, right exactly. views. And yeah. there's, there's a lot of people that I've realised that, that, you know, the moment we sort of outcast anybody that thinks differently to us, then we have a problem because mm. we become just like them. You yeah, know? exactly. I think it's very important that the song, the film ends with is called Where You're From. Yeah. And it goes back to your point. Because it's a question that perhaps, no, perhaps, like most definitely you and I have heard a million times. Like mm. I, is and, and it goes back to his exact lyrics in that song where he's like, where are you from? No, no, no. Where are you really from? Mm -hmm. Which is a, like, it, it's a question that you've heard a million times, which if I'm honest, I have no problem answering. Mm. Like if you mm. ask me where you're from, I have no problem telling you. But it's the tone of the delivery sometimes that you know what it implies. One of the lyrics is, is you know, you ask me where I'm from, well, I don't know, you're going to have to give me a map. And it's this thing, it, as you say, it's the, you're not asking me where I'm from because you know the answer you want me to give you. You're not asking, mm. you're not asking if I'm from Brixton or I'm not asking mm. if I'm from Lewisham, I'm from Tottenham. You're asking me, where do I look? It's where do I look like I'm from, not where are you from? And it's where you want to go with that question. Where you want to go exactly. is, let's establish a territory here. Oh, yeah. Let's make it very clear that you are from somewhere else. You know, when I bring back to what I said about feeling British and 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 Riz Ahmed, and and I'm curious to know what his identity is and how how he sees. Because the reason I'm curious to know that is because it's a funny story. I was in New York. We went with my partner. We was coming on a train, and this lady come up and she heard us talking. And as Brits do, we don't know what's going on. We're like, you know, well, when's the next train? What's happening? Uh, she said, "Oh, you guys from London?" It's like, forgive me for the horrific accent. And I said, "Yeah." She goes, um, "Wow, you know, Brits. Uh, what are you doing? How are you finding America?" And I said, "It's great. What did you think of New York?" Um, I said, "Yeah, it's great. Did you visit the Freedom Tower?" I said, "Yeah, it was like really touching." And and then she said. Um, you know what I hate about the Brits? <laughs> and I was like, okay. And she said, what you guys did to India, it was disgusting. And I thought, yeah, she has a point, you know. And, and I was like, yeah, you know, they haven't got fans in many places. And she goes, but then why do you live there? Well, what do you mean, why do I live there? What, what, what? And then she said, well, you know, you, why, why are you living there? Um, they're horrible. And she started talking and I thought, well, you know, there is a lot of bad history. And then I started feeling very sort of like 
Stop insulting my people. Okay, it's it's like weird because, you know, Brits have done... Brit- British history is horrible, you know. And we, Why uh, are you going to go and live that's pure? I mean, but, what, yeah, what, I mean, what territory well, of the At the time, Donald Trump history? was the president of the US and I was thinking, like, what, what are you talking about? Have you seen your president, mate? Yeah. And, um, and I mean, I, I hate... That's one thing I hate about, about the British history is the fact... And I hate that we don't teach enough people about it. And then she just said it. She said, we're blue-blooded Americans and we don't need no queen. Tell her to kiss my ass. And she got off the... <laughs> Um, she got off the train and I, I like this lady wow. said to me we're not all like that um, I would like to wrap up this discussion with one final question in terms of the intention behind using music to end the film because I feel like there's a reason behind that and uh, obviously like I mean as you mentioned Ben like Riz has an intricate relationship with music like he's double as an MC for years I am not very familiar with his music but to me, and like maybe Simon, I, could, I would love your thoughts here. Like music sometimes is like the medium that is the most cathartic in a way because you can like breathe into a message without mm. having to mull over it in a way. It's just like, so it, it, it's more instinctual than film even sometimes. It's a bit of an equalizer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So for me, like to go back to that, where you're from, like what race must have helped you know, in that moment, like the confusion, the frustration and the resentment towards like that kind of duality behind like his identity is perhaps the best way that could have communicated that message. But yeah, I would love to hear everyone's take on like, why is music the the medium to make that message most effective? My only comment about that film that I would have the only thing I would have changed is that I wouldn't have brought the music in so early because I felt like I would have what kept it. What do you mean it. early? Because it's, it's in the end. But the music comes in before the rap begins, doesn't it? Oh, you mean technically? Yeah. Like, okay. And I would have kept. I would have kept the action like documentary style reality soundscape. It's okay. really interesting. Are you talking about when the action started? Yeah. You know what? It's really interesting. Right. Now, one of our judges said to us uh, in the comments, the music was um, a, the abrupt. The abrupt introduction to the music distracted him mm. I, I, agree felt, with that. I felt that like I disagreed with him you know and I felt that my opinion on that was I mean he, he he was the only one that said it and I get it I get why but then I also get why they chose to do that because I think that and that was a bit genius in the way because it was like this obscenity of how it, what's happening it's like yeah let's just fucking put music on it almost and make, made it more absurd yeah yeah it? let's yeah. put the absurdity to it let's just make this really uncomfortable I think that it works in a way that it makes you feel uncomfortable for the right reasons. But to go back to your question, I think music just allows more emotion to be conveyed per second, if yeah. you like, because more emotion can be poured into the delivery of the lyrics, to the like, say, the breathing of it, the energy of it. I think that's why it can be so powerful. I think and that kind of goes back to kind of what I said about Rizamed's music in particular, in that he has a very... We've all seen Shakespearean plays where it's like five minute long speeches and you're kind of like, okay, you're, you, you know, you've lost me and now I don't know what's going on. He has, he has an amazing way with words. He's, a, he's clearly very like rhythmic and he has a way of, if it had just been a regular speech, it could get lost. But because it has this cadence, cadence to it, yeah, this rhythm, this, you know, emotion, like he's able to deliver it in a really kind of, stoic beaten down way but because of the way the beat goes he's able to build it up and he's able to build himself back up in that scenario you know as you say the cadence and stuff like that it just has that lasting impact more so than just some kind of monologue would in my head in that scene 
Riz is actually dead. And it's more like his, almost like his spirit singing. It's because he's yeah. being shot, he's lying on the road. It's his, like a his post. Epi- his epitaph or something. Yeah, it's, it's, surreal. It's, it's a surreal scene. So I think that's why the rap works particularly well. And I do think the reason he kind of resurrects in a way, like the one thing that we need to take away from this film is that ultimately this is a story about defiance rather than defeat. Even though we have a heartbreaking story in front of us, like there is a lot to take away that mm. is actually quite powerful. A lot of his music is inspired by grime, and grime is a very, very British thing. Yeah. I think that where, say, he's doing that in that style, he's sort of also saying, this is who I am. This is this is me, which, again, made me really relate to it. Were Anil and Reese made aware that they were shortlisted in your festival for the film? I believe so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I believe so. I think um, Anil was going to try and come down to the uh, event last year. Uh, so they actually won in 2020. And the film, mm. because we were in lockdown, we couldn't, we screened it. We did the online festival. But I was so, it was so important to me that that film needs to be with a live audience. I don't care how many times people have seen it. It needs to be yeah. with a live audience. So I said, I don't care how much time we've got. We're going to show this at our next event, even though it won last year, we're going to show it. And that's not going to be a regular thing. It's only because people didn't get to see it. And yeah, they were really supportive and grateful, you know. Amazing. Um, I think we saw the ending again you guys so. uh kiri thank you so much for joining us uh thank you please where can people find you south london film festival on instagram south london film on twitter because you can't have bloody long words on there so <laughs> just south london film festival put it in google we should be the top thing on there get in touch you know if you've got any questions get in touch we do q a sometimes online with filmmakers aspiring artists and whatnot and yeah, keep an eye out for like more things we're doing. We're like we will be as much as we can getting out there, inspiring more, more creatives. Really exciting. Okay, that was the show, people. And remember, stories are how we imagine ourselves in other people's lives, right? In a world where like certain stories have been pushed to the side, where certain people are othered, representation matters. To so say yes to all kinds of stories of all kinds of backgrounds of all kinds of people. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Did you like it? Did you like that? Did I like it? I loved it. I, I had no idea you could milk a cat. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs>